0: Okay, we got the thumbs up for everything. So let us begin. <laughs> Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo Tassa bhagavato sama Samma So welcome to the second episode of the Word of the Buddha and for those of you who don't know, this is a translation, I would say a very accurate and meaningful translation of the uh, particular suttas and this uh, particular translation, it follows Uh, something which was first done by Jnana Ponika Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path uh, in detail but using the suttas and using the translations from the suttas like you can even see on there already we have the experience component of existence and that's for Vedana because to me that's a much more accurate description most people use the word feeling but feeling can mean all sorts of things, like an emotional feeling and uh, it can do much better than that and again it doesn't really reflect how the Buddha explained and defined Vedana. So these are um, those translations and it's also you find that I've taken phrases, shortened them, they're not repeated as much as usual and which makes it easier to understand and also that when we do it this way you get a much more powerful effect of what the Buddha actually taught. So last time I got uh, just a first description of the five khandhas and you can see just the paragraph beforehand, any kind of consciousness whatever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousnesses. This is the consciousnesses component of existence. All consciousnesses should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not a permanent essence. Even the word permanent essence, I use that instead of the word soul or self because that gives it a much more uh, emotive meaning and a more accurate meaning. And now we come to uh, today's class, the five components of existence, this is called the Khandas. I call them components of existence, it, it, means not, it doesn't really translate the word kanda, but it gives a much better understanding of what these five Khandas are. We have this existence, What is existence? And the Buddha split it up into these five characteristics. And what is the form component of existence? This is how the Buddha translated, it is the four great elements and the physical qualities derived from the four great, great elements. And what are the four great elements? They are earth, water, fire and the air element. And that's basically how people understood stuff in the time of the Buddha. These days we can um, uh, expand that to understand how modern physics understands stuff. You know, fundamental particles, the four forces which bind those uh, four components of ex- four. four, um, what is it called, four forces and the subatomic world. And they call that what we call stuff. And interestingly, with stuff, it's also included the absence of stuff, the space between stuff, you know, the emptiness. That's also included in this you know, physical emptiness, in the form component of existence. And the second component of existence, especially it's your bodies, other people's bodies, the world, the planets, space and everything which is between that. An experience component of existence, Vedana. There are these three types of experience. What three? Pleasant experience through any of the six senses, unpleasant experience through any of the six senses and neither unpleasant nor pleasant, neutral experience through any of the six senses. These are the three types of experience. So everything which you can say is an experience uh, through any of the six senses, and then the saying it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, somewhere in between. But what are really talking about here is not really focusing on whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or in between, but focusing on the fact is experience, sensory experience. And because the perception component of existence. What is perception? Are these six kinds of perception perceptions of sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, and perception of mental objects? And as uh, Venable Rakata was asking earlier, can you please uh, explain that in a bit more detail? They've got some wonderful similes coming up soon which will, will explain it in more detail. And the will, and in parentheses, and the result of willing. This is the Sankara component of existence. What are volitions? There are these six kinds of volition. Will regarding sights, will regarding sounds, will regarding smells, will regarding tastes, will regarding touches, and will regarding mental objects. And I think it is later on we Yeah, yeah it is later on we got the translation, the reason why. I call Sankara will, that's coming up soon. And lastly, not the consciousness component of existence but the consciousnesses component of existence. And what are consciousnesses? This is making it very clear, it's not just the mind consciousness, all the other five senses have a consciousness associated with them, we do have sight consciousness, Uh, Ear Consciousness, it's called hearing. And what are Consciousnesses? There are these six kinds of Consciousness, Sight Consciousness, Hearing Consciousness, Smell Consciousness, Taste Consciousness, Body Consciousness and Mind Consciousness. Six different types of Consciousness. And then we have the dependent origination of Consciousnesses. And this is not just being pedantic, but this is important. If the sense of knowing, mind, is intact but no mind objects come into its range, then there is no manifestation of mind consciousness. Mind consciousness is not there. If the sense of knowing is intact, mind objects come into its range but there is no conscious engagement and there's no manifestation of mind consciousness. But when the sense of knowing is intact, mind objects come into its range and there is a conscious engagement, then the mind consciousness manifests. So it is like when you have the camera pointing at an object and that computer is working, we say that that is the uh, the sense of Uh, photographing or videoing is intact, but if nothing comes into its range then there is no manifestation of a a vision uh, in the computer being recorded. Uh, If all the the apparatus is intact, something comes into its range, there is no conscious engagement, in other words you don't turn it on, there is no manifestation of mind consciousness, of the video, but when you have the video equipment is all intact, there's something comes into its range and then you turn it on and reboot it or whatever and then there is a manifestation of the image in the computer or uh, however it's being live streamed. The reason they have this is that we see that mind consciousness is not an originator, it's not always there, it's an effect. You need other things to be intact, come together before mind consciousness appears. If one of those causes is not there, then mind consciousness is not there. But when the sense of knowing is intact, mind objects come into its range and there is conscious engagement, then the mind consciousness manifests. And so with the other five senses and the origination each of their own type of consciousness. Consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on sight and visual objects, it is called or reckoned as sight consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent on hearing and sounds, it is reckoned as hearing-consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent on smell and odors, it is reckoned as smell-consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent upon taste and flavours, it is reckoned as taste-consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent on touch and tangibles, it is reckoned as touch consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent upon the mind and mind objects, it is reckoned as mind consciousness. All different types of consciousness, which is why I translate winyana as consciousnesses. It does give a different meaning. Consciousness is not some fundamentally Permanent essence which is always there, consciousness is an effect, it's caused, and because it's caused, it means that it is not you, not a self, and it is impermanent and suffering. Anyway, whatsoever there is of form. First component of existence, whatsoever, this belongs to the form component of existence. Whatsoever there is of experience, fedana, this belongs to the experience component of existence. Whatsoever there is of perception, this belongs to the perception component of existence and whatsoever there are of will and other mental formations, sankhara, this belongs to the will component of existence. And whatever there is of consciousnesses, this belongs to the consciousness component of existence. The whole point of this teaching is to be totally inclusive. Whatsoever there is of form, whatsoever there is of consciousnesses, the whole lot belongs to the consciousness' component of existence. Now this is one of the arguments why sankara is translated as will. What is the sankara component of existence? The definition of sankara is the six types of will, chedana, kaya will involve with the objects of the six senses. And that's only a very short definition, but it makes it much more authoritative and it makes it much more easy to understand what the Buddha was saying. When we understand sankhara as basically will and the things which come from will. Now the next one is dependency of consciousness. Should I pause for questions yet? We haven't come to the perception analogies yet. So, yeah? Yeah. It's good exercise for Bill.
1: It's about the word Sankara. Oh yes. It's a compound of two things, Kara and San. Ah. Kāra means making, san means together, that doesn't sound too much like will.
0: Yes, because it's the will which causes things. Which so makes it's like it.
1: crea- creative, yes. making or something.
0: But we have to be again careful, just when we split things into their compounds and try and find the root meaning by analysing the parts of the word. That ignores the way the Buddha defined it, and I was following here the way the Buddha defines Sankhara and also the way the Buddha uses the word sankara. And one of the so I just did the translation from that particular Samyutta 22. Also, that if ever you know you look in the dependent origination, dependent cessation. The second factor of dependent origination is Sankhara and the Buddha defines it as the three Sankharas. Volitional formations coming from basically the body, the speech and the mind. Kaya, vachi and Jitta Sankhara. So this is actually using the word will would be pretty accurate to see how the way the Buddha meant that word to be understood.
1: I've seen it translated as fabrications or something. Yes, you
0: can call it fabrications, but that is like the result of the will. That's why I said earlier the will and things uh, associated with the will or caused by the will it's, as Venom Bodhi would say, it is the active part and the result, the cause and the result. And the sankhara is the thing which causes things and those things which are caused.
1: Yeah, I saw it used in weaving, a weaver was called a, a kara, there was a, a word for that then, kara, yeah. so, but that's the difference between the, the weaver and the carpet.
0: Well, usually the kara, is that K uh, long A R A? This is Sankara with a H in it. K H A R A. It usually has that special meaning. Okay. You may ask another question. So, oh, you got one. Okay. Oh, sorry, I didn't see your hand up. Go on. I
2: Different kind of viññanas. Yes. Um, can this sight and other viññanas uh, remember things? So. Remember? Can they remember? Like if we see Buddha statue. Okay. Yes. Can we remember only with uh, sight viññana, or we need? Uh,
0: no, because usually what happens is, as soon as you see, say, a Buddha statue, then the mind. Consciousness takes the object of the other five consciousnesses as its object. So you see the Buddha statue, and then you know you saw the Buddha statue. And that can be where the memory gets uh, created. Does that make sense? This is one of the um, answers to that problem of Rene Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I know. Of course that is not accurate. You think, therefore you knew that you thought. When you put the time in, you have the thought and then the mind knows that you thought. Once that um, chronology, only a short chronology is recognized then you can see the error in Descartes assuming that that's a sense of self and proving a sense of self. I think, therefore I am. Be much better to say I think, therefore I was. Please excuse me but I do remember this lovely cartoon in one of the Buddhist magazines that Descartes was trying to instruct a horse and was telling the horse, I think therefore I am and the horse saying, you think therefore you are what? (laughs) In other words, that I am being a transitive verb which needs an object. You think therefore you are, you are what? It's a very lovely argument, especially coming from a horse. (laughs) Anyway, dependency of consciousnesses. Though someone might say, apart from the form, apart from experiences, Vedana, apart from perceptions, apart from will, I will make no known the coming and going of consciousnesses, their passing away in rebirth, their growth increase in expression, that is impossible. It's a very beautiful statement that it means that the consciousnesses are not independent of the other five khandhas To make it even more clear, just as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other, so too with the objects of consciousness nama rupa, as a condition, consciousnesses come to be. With consciousnesses as a condition, the objects of consciousnesses come to be. These two things are leaning against each other, the objects of consciousness and any one of the consciousnesses. If one were to remove one of those sheaves of reeds, the other would fall. So too with the cessation of consciousnesses the objects of consciousness cease to exist. With the cessation of the objects of consciousness consciousnesses cease to exist. Whenever you have consciousness you have to be consciousness of something. It's one of the reasons why I make use of that. When people say they get into some deep meditation, they're aware, but they don't know what they're aware of. Keep on looking. Keep on being aware. You cannot have consciousness, not even the mental consciousnesses of deep meditation without having an object of consciousness. And this is one of the reasons why we have the four jhanas and then the arupa states. In the arupa states, what are they all about? That is when the object of consciousness starts to disappear and with the objects of mental consciousness, the mental consciousness starts to vanish. When you have nothing to be aware of, really nothing, then mental consciousness turns off. And that's the niroda experience. You're always aware of something. Unless if you're not, then consciousness turns off. Okay, time for you to do your your run. (laughs) Over that way. Yeah, okay. You can go the back way. Oh, you're going the long way around. Crikey.
3: Thanks, Arjan. Um, I was just wondering, obviously you you want to gain to those upper levels of, of the jhanas. The How about when it's the opposite, like in trauma, when we lose memories or we get into a dissociative state? Does the Buddha say anything about those sort of circumstances?
0: Well, imagine just the people who became fully enlightened. People like Patachara. she was very heavily traumatized. Uh, Kisa Gotami was heavily traumatized by the loss of her only child. People like Angulimala, traumatized by being a serial killer. And all of those, and all the many other people who had very traumatic experiences, they still manage to let them go, allow them to disappear in the past. How can they do that? How can you let go of the past? And it's a different term, subject, but you let it go by first of all letting it in. And after letting it in, it doesn't become a big problem. You don't add emotional strength to it. It's hard for me to say this but this is how it happens and then it vanishes. Just like many other of your memories of the past, when you were small, young, many years ago, the pleasant ones, many of those have disappeared. Why do we always carry the unpleasant ones? It's interesting that many human beings, we focus, we get more interested in negativity than you know, the two bad bricks and the wall. Why didn't I even focus on those? And they dominate my memory of that war years ago. Why do we remember just some of the awful experiences we went through? Why can't we let it go? Okay, I'm going to get into trouble here, I'm going totally off context. But there was one sort of uh, piece of evidence. There was a huge train crash outside of Paddington many years ago. Many people were killed because of a signal failure. Two trains, they collided. And some people were offered counselling, some people weren't. Well, they, they were offered it but they refused it and then some really smart psychologists tried to locate those who weren't offered counselling who had seen or experienced the same level of trauma from the outside but never had any counselling compared to those who did have counselling and they found a significant difference in their recovery rates. Those who didn't have couns didn't have counselling did far better. Please, I apologise because that's your job as a counsellor. <laughs> There's some people who need it, but they don't all need it.
3: Yeah, I, I I know. I was just wondering if it had any links with the the different consciousnesses. Yeah, in yeah. Terms of yeah, it's just interesting because that's like the opposite of.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank okay. you. No trouble. Okay, you got some more running to do. <laughs> One and then two. And under first, yeah. Okay.
4: Again, uh, you mentioned that in that on that question, you first uh, let it in, letting it in. Used the word letting it in. Yeah. Did you mean to say that you accept? Yeah. The fact that traumatic condition happened, Yeah, but then looking at it with wisdom, yeah. with right wisdom that there was no one doing it, but indeed. it was causes and conditions and therefore yeah. letting it go again then at, at that yeah,
0: point. Indeed. And you take away your shame or your anger at whoever did that. Those are the two things which make it last. Blaming. It's hard not to blame when sometimes people treat you abominably, but that's who they are.
5: So
4: well,
0: this be only feel ashamed here. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Prem.
5: Ajahn, this may be a little out of context as well. <laughs> hypnotised. When you are hypnotised, what happens? if the Vinyana. How do you get to remember your past lives and? including your experiences,
0: I understand sometimes. Okay, you're talking about the, the memory now. Interestingly, the part of the memory, how the Buddha said it, was sati. Those people who are very mindful have very good memory of the past. It's also, it's like the word sati. It's also, you know, comes from the Sanskrit smriti almost like tradition the past. So what does that mean? You've got a very clear mind so you can actually access these things. When it comes to memories of past lives, how on earth does that work? Two types of memory, the one which is in your brain and the one which is in your mind. And the mind of course lasts much longer. It continues cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect for a long time. So many of the memories of past life is accessed through the mind, not through the brain.
5: That's right. Yep.
0: So, but exactly, some people say, "Well, where is it stored in the mind?" People have lived such a long time. My goodness, the mind must be so overburdened. But I don't think that you can say that. That is a storage, like you know we store information on a computer, you know, sometimes you know my email account, sometimes you're looking for something and there's just too many emails in there. you can't find it you can don't need to scroll through every one to find something, sometimes that i don't know the only way I can call it it's like a resonance sometimes that You may have an experience in this life and it's a quite a, quite a moving experience and that reminds you of something in the past which was similar. It triggers memories from the past and some of those memories from the past may be from previous existences. Like some people are really afraid of flying an aircraft. You know, Where does that come from? It just triggers this memory of usually of something terrible which had happened when you were flew an aircraft before, or you know, people who are afraid of like cliff edges, or they may have fallen over one in the previous life. That's all speculation, but you can imagine if you did were attacked, you know, in the dark by robbers, and then if that was very. Damaging to your health, even killed you in the past. Then, if you're walking through a jungle over in Sri Lanka somewhere and robbers came out, that would kind of trigger an emotion even in this life. The mind would remember. Does that make any sense?
5: Uh, Kind of.
0: Yeah, because I I know you are old old stories. That's Ananda's old story, I think. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Can I actually go back because we're supposed to be doing the suttas, not question time. So, and then after I've finished the uh, three characteristics and the and the Anatta doctrine, this is actually where we have the similes of the five khandhas. Actually, add more to it. So. What did I get to? The sheaves of reeds. We got next the three characteristics of existence. All phenomena that arise from a cause do not persist. Okay, that's the translation here of anicca. Instead of saying it's impermanent, did a different, uh, use different words to say the same thing. They do not persist. All phenomena that arise from a cause are suffering. Because when the cause stops, what arose from it stops. If you liked it, now it's gone, that's suffering. If you didn't like it, it was suffering while it existed, but it doesn't last. And all phenomena are without a permanent essence. That's a very famous saying of the Buddha. Now, in more detail, what do you think? Does form body persist or disintegrate? It disintegrates, Venerable Sir. In the original, it says, "Is form body impermanent, permanent, or impermanent?" And I. S- translated that as persist or disintegrate, to use those words, permanent or impermanent, as we would use them in modern language for the body. Instead of saying it's impermanent, that doesn't hit as hard as, as do you think that form persists or disintegrates. It disintegrates, Venerable Sir. Is what disintegrates suffering or happiness? Suffering, Venerable Sir. You may have a car parked outside. That's going to disintegrate. If it disintegrates during this talk, you'll be suffering a lot. But of course it disintegrates slowly, so we don't see the suffering of it. Maybe I should give this talk for a bit longer so you don't get outside until the car is disintegrated. Is what disintegrates suffering or happiness? Suffering, Venerable Sir. Is what disintegrates is suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is a permanent essence. No, Venerable Sir, it disintegrates. Does experience, Vedana, persist or disappear? Does perception persist or change? Does will stay the same or come, go, and alter? Is your will always the same? Are consciousnesses. Constant or changing? Always changing, Venerable Sir. If that is so, so no, always changing, Venerable Sir. Is what is always changing, suffering or happiness? Suffering, Venerable Sir. Is what is in constant suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is a permanent essence. No, Venerable Sir. Now, do this last paragraph and then we can do more questions. So, too, whatever kind of form, body there is, whether past, future, or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to you to be void, empty, insubstantial. For what solidity could there be in form? And this is one of the first of the similes. Suppose it were raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. is alright, right should be the phone, oh no, sorry, I went a bit too far there. Uh, the Anatta Doctrine. Suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and empty. For what solidity could one find in a mere lump of foam? So too, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you inspect and carefully investigate it and it will appear to you to be void, empty, insubstantial. For what solidity could there be in form? You're just like lumps of foam floating on the Ganges and I always like that simile simply because if any of you ever did study quantum physics, up to I think it's 10 to the minus 26 meters, that's the, what's it called, level, the Planck level. Below that, the form doesn't have any meaning anymore. I remember this great quantum physicist describing, when you get to that state, that level, then the whole world is not solid at all, it's just like foam. They use the word foam. There's nothing substantial inside, you can't say there is. Next simile, suppose it were raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and momentary. I like the word momentary there. For what permanence could there be with a water buffalo? <laughs> with a water bubble. <laughs> Sorry, water buffalo. Yeah, water buffaloes are also impermanent. This is a water bubble. So, whatever, so that was with perception. And always remember, I usually quote Robbie Burns, that perceptions are like poppies spread, you pluck the flower, the bloom is shed, or like the snowfall in the river, white for a moment and then gone forever. And if you said that with a Scottish accent, it actually rhymes. But the idea of snowfall falling in a river, it's white for just a moment and it's gone. There's the raindrops, that's perception. Vedana, so to, uh, that's Vedana, sorry, like r- big raindrops. perception. Suppose that in the last month of the hot season, around noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it and would appear to them to be void, hollow and illusory. For what reality could there be in a mirage? The thing with a mirage, you're actually seeing it. You're not imagining it, it's a real image, but you're giving it an interpretation it does not deserve. It's the same with your question of perceptions of all the information which any image, especially like a sight, but also sounds, physical feelings, we touch, smells and tastes and even mind objects. is only part of that information that we focus on and some of that we amplify so much that we get uh, an understanding which that experience doesn't really merit. A good example I said the other day about the simile of sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? How many of you don't like sauerkraut? It's the same thing. What's the difference? Why do some people like it and some people don't? It's nothing to do with the sauerkraut. It's everything to do with me or with you. And That's the trouble with perceptions. It's what we add to it or we choose to recognise, or we choose to reject. We can't even say choose, it's an automatic, will is not ours, it's a process which is conditioned. But that is actually, you can see the perceptions, we perceive some things, we don't perceive other things. There's so many things which are a possibility. And that's of course, in meditation, that's one of my jobs is to encourage certain perceptions when you meditate and to make sure that other perception you don't give any credence to. Things like fear or excitement. Put them down for a while. They're just perceptions which aren't helpful to you. Ah. Uh, So to whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, you expect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to you to be void, empty, illusory. For what reality could there be in perception? Even when you perceive the past as a memory, how real is it? How much are we choosing to Focus on one part of their experience and reject other parts. I mean, you know, as a, as a therapist, that sometimes people add or subtract from the, the real experiences they had. Suppose a person eating hard wood would take a chainsaw and enter a forest. There, they would see the trunk of a large banana tree. Straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core, they would cut it down at the root, cut it off at the crown and unroll the coil. As they unrolled the coil, they would not find even soft wood, let alone hard wood. A person with good sight would inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and without a base. For What basis could there be in the trunk of a banana tree? So too, whatever kind of will there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. You inspect it and carefully investigate it. As you investigate them, it appears to you to be void, empty and hollow. For what underlying basis could there be in volition? That was the Buddha's simile of a banana tree. And I must admit, I far prefer Venerable Gunaratna Bhanteji's simile of Vinyana as being an onion. You peel an onion looking for something solid inside, and there is nothing solid inside. It is empty of any solid core. But as you peel the onion, the longer you peel it, the more you cry. So that's the suffering of willing, thinking you're going to get your own way or solve problems, but you find it just creates tears. And lastly, he used to explain onion, it goes on and on with an I in the middle, and the I is you. <laughs> that was really quite <coughs> brilliant. Anyway, suppose there were a magician would perform a trick at the crossroads. A person with good eyesight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and deceptive. For what truth could there be in a magical illusion? So too, whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, inspect and carefully investigate it and it would appear to you to be void, empty and deceptive. For what authenticity could there be in consciousnesses? So now is the time where I invite questions so I can pause because that's quite strong stuff.
4: Where did the Buddha get the chainsaw from?
0: Okay, exactly. The Buddha actually said just to take a saw to cut down a tree to looking for hardwood. but. I don't think anyone would just take a saw to go into the forest, just you know, an old two-handed saw to cut down a tree to get hardwood, get planks for anything. Which is one of the reasons why we're trying to sort of make it more intelligible by saying chainsaw. Yeah, good. Go on, Ananda. Thank you, Ajahn.
4: Uh, it's about uh, one of the terms that you used, again previously. Uh, it's. Uh, not persisting and disintegrating mm. that I think it is uh, for in place of Viparinama Dhammu, is that the...
0: Viparinama, yes, subject to change.
4: Yes, so uh, is it then disintegrating or subject to change? Because before disintegrating, even without disintegrating, I think what the Buddha said was that yeah it's changing all the time.
0: Changing so, all the time because it changes. How would we say, say a house or a car, this is not just bodies, it's stuff, you included, the microphone, the computer. It's not just a body we're talking about with that first Kandarupa, it's like stuff in the world. You are disintegrating, I know that. Just, you know, all the dust in your house usually comes, I think they say, from your skin, disintegrating. And we shed that, and that's the dust in our house.
4: So really what I was uh, thinking was the other four kandhas. Oh, so yes. the consciousness, vijnana. there is nothing to disintegrate, but it is simply changing. So is the Vedana, so are the uh, sannyas, so are the sankharas. Yeah. So there is n- nothing absolutely to disintegrate, but it's simply changing, Ajahn. So that's why I'm asking whether disintegrating is the right yeah. thing for
0: that. Did I say it for all of them? So persist or disappear. What did I say that in there? Translate it that way.
4: Disintegrating was there. I
0: think. Yeah, that's a thing for the body to disintegrate. Oh, was it only for the body? Yeah, that's what I had. Okay. What do you think does form persist or disintegrate? Disintegrates. What disintegrates? Suffering or happiness? That's with the form. Does oh yeah, for experience? I said, does it persist or disappear? Yeah. Does perception persist or change? Does will stay the same, or come and go and alter? Yeah, I did use only uh, disintegrating for the body, trying to find a word which many people would understand much more clear.
4: Because for all for all five, I think the word is uh, the, the, uh, Yes. Yes.
0: But I'm doing something which uh, Professor A.K. Warder said: you do not translate words; you translate phrases. You may have the same word there with Anichal viparinama, but how would you translate that word with the different khandas? Um, you would give them a. Different English word, which makes it more um, accurate and more meaningful yeah, okay you <laughs> should have grabbed him <laughs> go on
1: uh, when I read in King Melinda questions and yeah. I want so, would you agree, would you agree with that, that when uh, King Melinda asked the monk, "Can you experience any one of the five aggregates, like individually, like we're doing?" He said, "No, you're only like a soup of five ingredients that you just taste the strongest one at the time." Do you agree with that kind of analysis? Not, that
0: not so much. You just can taste one of them, but they're all in there. You cannot have um, any type of consciousness as already saying without the objects of consciousness. You can have are like four kanda beings, those are like heavenly beings who've got no, uh, arupa beings who have no form and you can also have very interestingly one kanda beings and those are the ones uh, who have a, a they're not perceptive, they're not got any sort of conscious activity at the time, just a body, just like a very fine body just they're there as a body and when that disappears, then the other four candles come back. It's like a person being unconscious.
1: Uh, and, but Keeping it within the human, human experience, oh, human. Okay, yeah. can we sort of you know, just like look at one yeah. at a time and say that's sanya and the, or the, the, sorry, this one's perception and that one's consciousness and this yeah. one's that one or is it always a mush?
0: There's always a mush there but sometimes of course you can focus on one, but the other one's always there. You can perceive one and just ignore the others. But there is a time of a one sense, one candor operating. What happens when you're under anaesthetic in a hospital? There's no way to know, no perception, no sort of will, no consciousness, any type of consciousness, but your body is still there. That's like an asanya sata.
5: Ajahn, would you be able to say something about how the experience of jhanas informs the um, insight that the disappearing of things is suffering?
0: Okay. The disappearing of things is the freedom from suffering. This is, because why we people do the jhanas, why it's there? They do it because it's fun, but it's also because things vanish, they disappear. And that's actually what you experience within the jhanas, that's why good old Ajahn Bharmali named that book which he edited, uh, The Art of Disappearing which was not the art of attaining something, the art of everything just vanishing, disappearing and that's actually what happens as you go through those jhanas and the arupa states more and more things vanish and as they vanish there's more and more bliss but also you realise that what vanished was a burden and was suffering. The five senses you know, that some of you are getting old now and under. <laughs> you don't mind me saying that. But it's also, if you know what happens when you die, dying is unpleasant. But once you get past that point of death, it's very pleasant. The heaviness, stiffness, the uh, obstruction of having a body, especially when it gets old, disappears. And then you realise just what on earth were we afraid of death for? And then that's just the body, the five senses going. And then when the, the will goes, that's, you know, the, even the first jhana, I mean, it's so close, the, the will is almost gone. But in the second jhana it's totally gone. And there, you realise from that experience, if you reflect back what was missing, choice, will. Volition was gone. And then you realise that was the cause of the great f- sense of freedom. I don't know if you've ever had a control freak as a husband or a wife or as a parent or as a boss at work. If you've lived with a control freak, you realise just how peaceful it is you know, when you can escape from them, when you can disappear. and That's like it, being free from the will. The will just doesn't keep annoying you. Many of you when you meditate you get restless, disturbed. Why am I getting restless? Why are these things coming up to me I should do this, I should do that? Don't do it this way, try that way, try something else. That is like a manifestation of this thing called will. Imagine that never came up at all. You're meditating there and will did just not manifest didn't tell you what to do, didn't tell you what to ta- change, didn't tell you what to do next, didn't tell you where to go, how to sit, how to behave or anything, you would get so still. The cause of movement in the mind would have been turned off. You soon get incredibly peaceful and very deep in the meditation. And experience just how wonderful it is to be without the usual person who is the symbol of will, Mara. Mara, he's the head of the domain which controls other people's um, perceptions, the Paranima wasawati realm. In other words, the control freak in chief. That's not a bad description of him or her, whatever it is. But anyway, being free from that, cannot control you. Like you know the Buddha before his enlightenment. Try to control the Buddha, you know, through lust, desire, through power, being the world-turning monarch, through fear, we're going to destroy you. and nothing worked. I will not be controlled. I won't control myself. I'll let go of all that. Okay, Eddie, did I have a question? Oh, you had a question first. No, was that was it, wasn't it?
4: Yeah.
6: Thanks Ajahn Brahm from this wonderful, wonderful deep talk. Ajahn Brahm. So Ajahn Brahm, the three characteristics now, okay? and we say that these are very important tools you know given to us from the buddha to to use you know okay to contemplate when we deal with our problems you know i use it often you know yeah especially we, we know the suffering part we know impermanence especially the no self part no. it's not conc- it's not cert- it's not Ajahn Brahm said, as Ajahn Chah said, things are not certain you know so
0: it changes you know there's hope you, know. you, you yeah. see what i mean yes yeah, But especially suffering, uh-huh. because sometimes people come and talk to me and complain about what's happening in their life and sometimes you're tempted to say, well what do you expect? Mm. Life is suffering, mm. work is suffering, husbands are suffering, wives are suffering, kids are suffering. Mm. But it changes. Mm. Whatever suffering... <laughs> Like Acha yeah. would say when I was mm. really sick, don't worry, you'll either get better or you'll die. It won't mm. change the state of same. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the Anicca part mm. and Anacca means there's nothing much you can do about it. Mm. You know that's a sense of freedom. Mm. It's not your fault. Mm. Don't blame yourself. And don't think, well I have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the things is to learn how to do nothing. Mm. So let it go. Mm.
6: You know, I just yeah, three days ago, you know, I had this problem. Suddenly came to me, you know, it was intense suffering, and it was, it, it, yeah. it, it shook me. You see, so I referred to Ajahn Chah's book. You know, everything rises, fall, fall, everything falls, not certain. Yeah. So I used that. This thing, alright. I went to three characteristics, and truly, like now. It's my problem. It's from a high jolt on me, yeah. almost gone now. Yeah. I would say. It's problems very true. Don't, problems don't last. Yeah, yeah, they it don't, don't it don't last, you know. No. Yeah. But if we if we think if we keep we think it's permanent, we think yeah. it is not changing, we are fighting it, then
0: that's a problem. It it prolongs the suffering. See? Yes, the trouble is when one problem disappears, mm. then another one. Comes. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Work Thank of you. the life. Okay, I'll just. Oh no, we've actually got quite a bit to go. Actually, it's not that much to go from this first kind of an introduction. Where are we going now? Oops. Uh, here we go. This is the Noble Truth of Suffering member. Oh, I lost my page. Oh, we going here. And I am guilty of this. Why this laughter? Why this joy, when it's ever burning? Hey, oh no, I've gone too far, sorry, 22, yeah, 29, yeah. One who seeks pleasure in a body, seeks only irritation. One who seeks irritation, I say, is not freed from suffering. You know maybe, you know, I'm not the person to talk about this because I've been celibate for such a long time, a good monk for 48 years. But even I was fascinated when, I don't know how they managed to do this, they found that when a couple were having sexual intercourse, the parts of the brain which turned on, which lit up were the suffering parts of their brain, am I correct there? Yeah, and it was weird. How can something which people desire and crave for they light up the suffering part of a brain? I think maybe it's just perception because we're almost conditioned to believe that that's going to be pleasant and happiness and that conditioning just makes something pleasurable. I do remember, please excuse me, I think I was only 14, when I had my first glass of beer, British beer, and my reaction was, this is disgusting. Who would want to pay money for this? But the peer pressure was so great, I had to like it. And sometimes you wonder just how much does the peer pressure create our perceptions. Anyway, one who seeks pleasure in the body, seeks only irritation, one who seeks irritation, I say is not freed from suffering. One who seeks gratification in experiences seeks only disappointment. These are people who want to go and see the Grand Canyon or see the Great Wall of China. What have you still got on your wish list before you die? What you should put number one on your wish list list is to throw away all wish wish lists because a wish list, you're only going to be disappointed. One who seeks disappointment, I say, is not free from suffering. Even in 1969, you can check out on the internet, 1969 I went to see some relations who lived in upper New York State and I thought, great, it's only about a couple of hours from Niagara Falls. I go and see Niagara Falls. It was so disappointing. I never went there because they turned it off. They diverted the water over the Niagara Falls to repair the rock face. There was no Niagara Falls in the summer of 1969. <laughs> That's pretty disappointing. <laughs> See something natural and it was just unnatural. There was nothing there. Oh. <laughs> One who seeks reality in perceptions seeks only illusions. One who seeks for illusions, I say, is not free from suffering. Seeks reality in perceptions. One who seeks contentment in volition seeks only frustration. I love that one. Because sometimes you think to get some happiness in life or get some depth in samadhi, come and increase your volition. You know, just be strong, just stay the course. What you're doing is you're encouraging volition you get frustrated. One who seeks frustration, I say, is not free from suffering. And the last one, one who seeks eternity in consciousnesses. Seeks only for the affliction of more rebirth. One who seeks for rebirth, I say, is not free from suffering. Why this laughter? Why this joy when it's ever burning? Shrouded all about in gloom. When you look for the light, look at the attention demanding body, a mass of irritations. My legs are aching now. What's aching inside of you? Anything? Constantly needing support. I have to have a cushion underneath me. Prone to illness with nothing stable or lasting. The body gets worn out, so fragile, an incubator for disease. When life ends in death, this disappointing body dissolves. The three warnings. But my friend, didn't you ever see a man or a woman, 80 years of age or more, frail, sickly, struggling to walk, even with a walking frame? The pilot did not say walking frame, that's a new one. (laughs) Even white hair or a wig, that's a new one too. See a woman, 80 years of age or more, sickly struggling to walk even with a walking frame, with many a complaint, strength gone, with false teeth, with white hair or a wig, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs and forgetful. I added that forgetful, it's just a description of an old person. My friend, didn't occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to old age, I'm not exempt from old age. Let me now do good karma while I still can, by body, speech and mind. But my friend, didn't you ever see a man or woman sick, moaning, gravely ill, bedridden, incontinent? My friend, didn't occur to you, an intelligent or mature person, I too am subject to illness, I am not exempt from illness. Let me now do good karma while I still can by body, speech and mind. But my friend, didn't you ever see among human beings a dead man or woman in a coffin about to be cremated or buried? You know, very rarely do we see someone in a coffin, a real dead person. Before they open it up for you to view, it goes through the uh, what's it called the person who does like makeup on you, So embalmer, yeah. the embalmers are amazing what they can do. They can make you <laughs> what was that old story that somebody who died, the wife went to look at their husband in the coffin, and it was you no. Know, Clean shaved and smiling. And then she went, Are you sure that's my husband? She said. (laughs) Because he would always be a bit grubby and would never smile. But the embalmers do that. They think that that's going to make you feel better about the person who dies. One of the nice things, if for every in Asia, when you see a real dead body, which you know being in a cremation ground in chat those early years, see so many dead bodies, real dead bodies, they're gray, and you know, the, the body, and it looks dead. The people in coffins I see here in Australia, they, they look quite peaceful and alive. But the real dead bodies look much different. And very few people see that. Didn't you ever see human beings, a dead man or woman, in a coffin about to be cremated or buried? My friend, didn't occur to you an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. Let me now do good karma while I still can by body, speech and mind. Any questions? Hi
3: Ajahn. Um, my question was, well, statement. The statement about, um, I think, therefore I knew, with, um, I think, therefore I knew, I was. and I
0: think that I was. I was. Yeah, that Descartes thing.
3: Yes. um, With reaching the Arupa Jhanas, at that point you don't know. So coming out of the meditative state, um, is it when mind objects, start all over again, that you realize the suffering of the senses and that's when um, meditation becomes more appealing than that. Yes. Is it that is
0: the case, the deeper you go in meditation, the more things disappear. And the more things actually disappear, the more empty you are, the more peace and joy and energy you have. And of course in the jhanas, they're known for not just think, thinking disappears before you enter the jhana which is wonderful. You've got stillness. I go on a lot about that when I teach meditation here. Why do you think? And because we've been taught and encouraged to think at school, by your parents, by everybody. We think too much. Thinking is okay but we overdo it make ourselves crazy, we can't even sleep at night because we have too many thoughts. So we overdo the thinking bit, we do the experiencing bit, not enough. So instead of just thinking about the beautiful forest, instead you can see the beautiful forest without giving yourself a description. And of course, later on, when the five senses shut down, you think, my goodness, how much more peaceful and joyful that is. All the energy goes to your mind instead of being wasted about dealing with the five senses and the body. And that takes away your fear of death. Honestly, I can't imagine someone who's had a clear experience of a jhana ever fearing death. Dying, yes, the pain of dying, but the actual, just when you actually gone past that point of death. Such a great deal of freedom. That's one of the reasons, it's not really a joke, it actually, if the doctor came to you and said you've only got six months to live, can you make it three? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) whatever. And that's the same with again, the will when that disappears.
3: Is that the tadpole? Sorry? That's the tadpole that's been out of water? The, that, the frog that re- reaches out of water? That's right.
0: Fro- oh, yeah, yeah. The one which is out of water, yeah, that's the tadpole become a. The uh, tadpole become the frog. The frog jumps out of the water and realizes there's a world beyond just living in water. And that world beyond when five senses disappear, when will disappear. It's far more free. And I've, I use a simile of like the will being like the, the prison guard, never letting you sit still, always telling you what to do and you believe that's coming from you, it's just conditioned into you and then it's scary sometimes admitting that your will is not yours. Okay, they're old stories but I don't mind telling them, that once, that when I was a student, I saw this advertisement on the TV. I still remember it weirdly, St Bruno tobacco. I never smoked cigarettes, but in university, smoking a pipe was like being like Albert Einstein. It was like a, a sign of maturity and wisdom. So, this advert had this guy smoking a pipe of St. Bruno tobacco and then he was just walking down the street and this absolutely gorgeous young woman just was you know, in a grocery shop, jumped over the counter and followed him, entranced. Then we passed a newsagent, okay this is me as a young man, stupid and just like many other boys, more interested in girls than anything else and then he, she jumped over the new agent and, and then started following him. And just after one minute they had all these amazingly gorgeous women following this guy because the aroma of some Bruno tobacco was irresistible to the opposite gender. Absolutely ridiculous. I bought some <laughs> and I tried it and the only thing which followed me was a dog. <laughs> honestly, I'm totally stupid. But I'm glad I did that because it's a good example. It taught me a lot. About it. <laughs> Have you done anything stupid like that, honestly? Anyway, where did I get to? Okay, I can I go on just for five minutes. No, no, we shouldn't really, because it's more time for questions? Yes,
5: Prem. A little while ago, you mentioned that Mara was trying to control the Buddha from going uh, teaching, etc. Now, it can happen to anybody, I mean, trying to follow the path, Mara or some some forces, some external forces trying to dissuade you, etc. What is the mechanism of preventing that from happening? Is it the wisdom that you need to strengthen or?
0: Yes, all it is is wisdom. Because you know the way of defeating Mara, I know you Mara. It Doesn't take any willpower, no force, no aggression, no negativity, just I know you Mara and disappears. It's one of the reasons yourself, why, if, any, if anything does affect you, then afterwards you get to know that, and you say, I'm not going to be affected before, why should I be affected by this? I know you, Mara, and then Mara just has to disappear. It is a wisdom.
5: Purely the wisdom, Yeah. And the experience That's as well, I suppose. That's where the
0: wisdom comes from from the experience and seeing that with uh, deep insight. It also comes, I've got to be honest with you, it also comes because you get brainwashed by monks and nuns like me.
5: Thank you, you, Ajahn.
0: Yes, go on. Um, The first noble truth, uh
2: understanding suffering,
0: uh, is it right to say... Yeah, get closer to your mouth? Yeah. Like this? Yeah.
2: Um, is it right to say um, understanding of an- anicca, dukkha or anatta? Like yeah. Is it right to say understanding anatta also?
0: Yes. That's important. Uh, Basically, either one of those three, if you understand either one of those, the understanding of the other two just comes automatically afterwards. That's one of the reasons why they say by focusing on any one of those three, that like, different forms of liberation. We don't have to fully understand all of them. There's some, one of them you may really focus on. I must say, because, maybe because I've had Not that much suffering in this life. I've had a pretty lucky life, you might say, or good karma life. But it's always the anatta which I love the best. That is the one which I really get into. Other people prefer experiencing dukkha or just the insubstantiality of things. You can't control anything. It's anicca. Doesn't matter how much you will, anicca not to affect you and it is much more powerful than any individual will.
2: Yeah, like, um, I always thinking about it because I also like maybe associating you for many years. Yes, okay. I like anatta. Yeah. So I am thinking whether it's okay to say understanding anatta.
0: Yeah, that's great. I just
2: wanted to verify that. Thank you,
0: Ajit. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll do these and we'll finish the afterwards. Uh, If the consciousness is not dependent upon the other three factors, it is liberated. Is that Nibbana? Is that the real self? Thank you. No, it's not. It's the consciousness is dependent on the other four, um, so the other four parts of the Eightfold Path, again especially the, the three of them. But if the consciousness is independent of the other three factors, it disappears, it's not liberated, it's turned off. Nibbana means the flame has been turned off. I flip the switch and there's no more light. Nibbana was well understood by people in the time of the Buddha. Uh, The kids would even say, Mummy, the flame has gone out, it's nibbana it's Can you please shed some light on the mind, matter dependency, e.g. in dementia when the brain cells die, the mental moments that arise, do not arise, do not have different characteristics. When a person has dementia, the brain is just almost, as someone said the other day, like a filter, it stops so much coming into your uh, experience. but. At the end of a person's life, they've had dementia, a lot of the time they had terminal lucidity. They haven't remembered anybody for days or months or years and just before they die you come and visit them. Oh, it's you Nicholas, where have you been? They remember everybody, so mind is taking over from the brain. How can we be sure the perceptions of deep meditation are not due to altered brain activity during meditation? It is altered brain activity. During the deep meditation, the brain is being turned off, is altering. How can you make sure that they are real, is because in those deep meditation, the five hindrances have been turned off. The last of those hindrances is doubt. You have clarity of mind. And when you come out of that meditation, out of your meditation after experiencing deep meditation, those five hindrances remain off for a long time. That's where the certainty comes from. It becomes an experience, which that thing we call doubt is just not there anymore. Hindrances, as a translation for candors, No, hindrance is a a translation for our Delivers a negative connotation that we apply we, we would be striving to remove. Why the decision to translate it as components? The components because there's five of them. They describe the experience of being a human being or being any type of being because it describes that in terms of five categories which are um, totally explain or describe the being a human being. That's why I decided to translate them as components. Hindrances, never call them hindrances, hindrances are something else. Hope that makes sense to you. So anyway, uh, it's later than I thought. it's, it's gone past 4:30 now. So can we finish off now? Very good. So I usually finish off by bowing three times to the Buddha and saying uh, Buddang Savanakacchami, Dhamma and Sangang Savanakacchami" because it's like almost like a formal talk. It is a formal talk. Sammasambuddho Bhagavad bhagava, Bhagavad Vantang Abhiwadheimi Suvakato Bhagavata Dhammo Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato sawakasangho sangha namami Very good. Very good.